Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. John Wooden, perhaps the most revered and successful coach in the history of sports, was known for paying very close attention to the details. Wooden famously said that it's the little things that are vital. Little things make things happen. And some of you might even recall that Wooden even went so far as to teach his players how to put on their socks so they would never get a distracting blister in the middle of an important game. So today, in light of John Wooden's great wisdom, we're going to talk about managing the details. And we're going to specifically focus on some small but mighty leadership practices that are proving to produce more engaging, successful, healthy, and human workplaces, not to mention very appreciative employees. So my guest today is Erica Keswin, a workplace strategist and author whose new book, Bring Your Human to Work, 10 Surefire Ways to Design a Workplace that is Good for People, Great for Business, and Just Might Change the World, was published just this week. And it's through the research that Erica did before writing her book that we learned how some wise leaders and organizations are revisiting day-to-day workplace activities that honestly most managers are just choosing to ignore. And with a clear intention of making their companies more human, caring, and successful, they've thoughtfully reconsidered ways of making meetings more productive and inspiring, not events we all dread, ways of setting clear boundaries on when an employee's workday ends, ways of ensuring people actually take the vacation time they've earned in order to rejuvenate, and ways of ensuring organizational values provide the driving force of employee behavior instead of mere platitudes on the wall. Erica joins us from New York City, where tomorrow night she's going to be interviewed by former Today Show host Katie Couric. And so I'm thrilled we get to speak with her first. And so welcome to the podcast, Erica Keswin. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you and congratulations on your book. It's coming out tomorrow, I think, right on the 25th of September. And so it's wonderful to have you just as your book is coming out. So as we get things started, tell us what influenced you to write it, Erica. So I spent the last 20 years as a workplace strategist, really helping companies improve their performance through people. And as technology was becoming more and more prevalent in our lives, I started to notice another revolution going on at the same time. And I started to see the word human popping up everywhere I went, people talking about the importance of bringing their whole self to work millennials, Gen Z, talking about wanting purpose and meaning in work. And I started to wonder if these two revolutions were related. And I decided to embark on this journey to do research, which then turned into this book. And what I have found is that this technological or digital revolution has really inspired the human one. And the reason There are many reasons why we need a more human workplace today, but one of the biggest ones is that millennials, which will represent 75% of the workforce by 2025, and Gen Z are demanding it. They want to work for places that are more human, where leaders bring their human to work, and we'll talk about what that means, but they won't stay at a company that's not thinking about this and making real change. So I guess the first question I have is, in your book, by the way, I was very pleased because right at the beginning of the book, you said, you know, I've really been hearing about this human workplace for, you know, over the past five years, and it made you kind of wonder what's really happening. So the big picture, and I'm really familiar with this, is that the millennials are basically saying, we don't want the generation of leadership that our parents had, their parents had. And so they're kind of resisting the whole approach. But I'm, I'm really looking for you to say, here are the sort of the big changes that millennials are looking for. And of course, 20 years now, the, the Gen Z are on the planet and they want this even more from what I can tell from the research that I've read. So you've got this massive change in people. In other words, the generations that are going to be occupying work. What is it they're really looking for? And so what's, what's forcing this human change, if you will? So the top three things that they are looking for, the first is purpose and meaning. They want to be involved in something that is bigger than themselves. And that doesn't mean that every company, you know, that everybody wants to go work for a not-for-profit, but it does mean that they want a company that, that focuses on its values, that knows who they are, why they exist, 
and that they live those values and their programs and policies are aligned with those values. And we can talk more about that, but it's one of the most important chapters, which is chapter one. And it's about making sure they want to work for companies and you'll have to excuse the pun, but they want to work for companies where the values are off the walls and felt in the halls. The second thing they want is flexibility in how they work. They don't need to work remotely all the time, but they also want some say and some flexibility in where, when, and how they work. And that's addressed in one of the chapters in the book called Playing the Long Game. And the third thing they want is growth, learning, and development on the job. They are lifelong learners, and if they don't feel like they are progressing in their role, it doesn't have to be up. It can be up, down, and sideways. They will leave. So these three things are all related to a human workplace and are all important when leaders are looking at what they need to do to attract and retain top talent in this market. If you had to guess or educated guess based on your experience, what percentage of workplaces do you believe have really, truly dealt with these three things? This, this issue of living values, not just having them on the wall, flexibility in terms of when people work, where people work, how people work, and this complete focus on learning, development, growth, becoming more over time. How well are we doing in this? What's your assessment? I mean, I would say about, I bet half the companies out there have focused on one of the three, but I bet it's less than 10% that have addressed all three. I think that's really important to know, right? I mean, as we discuss this, it's really helpful for anybody listening in here to say that the report card so far is that very few of us have really done this. And I think it, part of it, sometimes I think it's getting over what seems like platitudes, which is, you know, the millennials are looking for meaning and they're looking for purpose and significance. And what does that mean? I think you're beginning to flesh that out. And I hope we kind of really bring this to an understanding so that people can have a real clear sense of if I do these things now, I can move the needle in a very significant way at any level. And many of them cost nothing. And one other thing I would add is that, you know, everybody talks about the millennials and Gen Z as the people that want meaning. The studies show that actually the desire for meaning and purpose increases with age, but just weren't enough of us to move the dial. So now that there's so many millennials and they know that there's power in that, they're not shy about saying what they need or want. I mean, I wanted it too back in the day, but there weren't enough of me. Well, actually, you know, I'll challenge that just a little bit. The baby boomer generation until millennials came along was the largest generation in American history. So there, there were enough of us. I'm one of them. And I think what we lacked, and I'll speak for myself and the people that I've worked with through the course of my career, I'm not so sure we felt entitled to ask for what millennials are asking for. I think we sort of said, you know, work is this equation where you take what they give you and you're lucky to have it. Whereas the millennials looked at that and said, you know, wait a minute, this hasn't always worked out so well for my parents. You look back on the recession and you think, you know, people lost their jobs, they lost their wealth and they were killing themselves. Two people, mom and dad, both working, made huge sacrifices and it didn't really end well. And I think millennials are saying, you know, but we want a totally different kind of world in which to work. And so, you know, I always sort of look at the millennials and say, thank you, because you're the ones that are going to really be changing this world. You know, I'm really grateful to them. And so I want to know what you mean by bring your human to work. That's the title of your book. So bringing your human to work is about honoring relationships. And it's about bringing this idea of relationships to the front of mind so that when you are interacting with a colleague or with a client or even thinking about your relationship with yourself, you are honoring those relationships. And that could mean anything from thinking about the role of technology. How do we leverage technology in terms of how we communicate, but where, when, and how should I put it in its place? So for example, I'm running late to a meeting for 10 minutes, great, I'll send you, or I'm running late for this podcast, you know, 10 minutes, I'll send you a text. I'm running an hour late, I'd probably better pick up the phone. I have an employee who is really upset and one foot out the door or a very unhappy client or customer. I need to put that idea of honoring that relationships in front of my mind, press that pause button 
and think about the best way to honor that relationship. And it's not rocket science, but it's not that simple either. And it takes a lot of intention and discipline to do it well. Is there more to it? So in other words, beyond the honoring relationships, by the way, my son, when he was in college, sent me a text for my birthday and I said, don't ever do that again. Pick up the phone and call your dad. So I get that, that there's sort of choices that we need to be making. And I think you're implying that we don't always do that very well. We sort of are a one trick pony. We either text all the time or email all the time or very rarely call all the time. Is that is that what you're saying? We just need to, not even specifically about technology, but we need to pause and say, what is the best way to honor this relationship? And, you know, in terms of is there more to it? I mean, I've broken it down into 10 different chapters and 10 different buckets and 10 different ways to think about doing that and curating those relationships and connections. And the reason why this is coming up more and more now goes back to where we started the conversation around this digital revolution, because before we didn't have a lot of choices in how we interface and interact with people. And now on a societal level, this is not a millennial thing, it's all ages, we are defaulting many times to a technological response as a default to honor that relationship. But in many cases, it's not the most effective or efficient or human approach. So one of the things, you know, I too have heard this expression, you know, more human workplace. And it's not generally language that I use, but I definitely understand it conceptually. I wonder if you think there's a shared understanding. So when people no. say we want to be more human, do we all definitely. do we all think it's the same thing? No, definitely not. As I said, I kept seeing it popping up over and over, bring your whole self to work, bring your human to work. One of the reasons why I wrote this book was to provide a guide and a roadmap of what it looks like, why it's important from a bottom line science perspective, and then how to do it. So I think that people don't know what it means, but even more, they have no idea how to do it. Well, we're going to dig into this in a second, but I guess I'm wondering also if the shared understanding, if there is some, if we collectively all think that it's the right thing to do, or do you think that there's pushback? In other words, it sounds good in theory, but this isn't how we're going to run our business. I think that it's the former. I mean, I think that I don't get a lot of pushback. Oh, I want an inhumane workplace. I think people see the data, they know it makes sense, but get caught up in how to do it. And I also think that we don't need across the board 100% shared understanding because at the end of the day, for your particular company, it will come down to what are your values what do you truly stand for? And your definition of a human workplace in an ideal world is aligned to those values and will look somewhat different from mine. Well, I'm going to ask you another question in terms of estimating where we are as a society. And we've got an audience in 87 different countries. So expand this as much as you can. When you advocate for values, meaningful values, meaning this is what we aspire to, and this is who we intend to be, what do you think is our success rate in marrying the execution of those values? So you said it for a second ago, well, I don't think anybody wants to have an inhumane workplace. I think that's true, but the execution oftentimes creates one. So how are we doing in terms of creating values and living them as an organization? This is one example, but I think it's representative. I spoke at a conference last week and I said, okay, by show of hands, raise your hand if your company has a set of values, a mission and a set of values, written down, articulated. Every single person in the organization raised their hand, but one, which was a startup, and they were just getting there. Then I said, okay, now by show of hands, put your hands up if these values are alive, if they're off the walls and in the halls, if people really know what they mean and can see them and feel them. And about a third of the people still had their hands up. So I would venture to say that's probably right. Certainly no more than 50%, but probably about a third of the companies have values that are truly alive and mean something, and they are integrated into who a company hires, 
how they develop people, how they reward people, all of those different things. So let's say a third to a half, maybe get it right. Okay. It's still not a very high percentage and it's nowhere near where we need it to be. So I'm wondering, do you have a sense of where most organizations fall down? In other words, do they create values that are just unachievable, you know, sort of ridiculousness, or are they vague, or do they just not get valued within, no pun intended, but do they get validated within the organization in a way that they show up on people's scorecards and people are evaluated for living them? So where's the shortfall? A couple of things. One mistake many companies make is that they have way too many values. So I've worked with companies that have had 10 12, 14 values. And the litmus test that I often use with companies is called the fork in the road. So you're at a fork in the road and you don't know, should I hire this person? Should I launch this new product? Should I close this deal? And you don't know what to do. Look to your values and your values should really help guide which way you turn. Now, I will preface this next comment by saying I have not worked with Uber But Lyft is a company that's in the book, and they have four very clear values that are alive in the company in many, many different ways. And when I walked out of the company, I asked myself, hmm, I wonder how many values Uber has, just as a comparison, because things were starting to go downhill. And I looked it up online, and they had 14. And so based on, you know, and when the new CEO came in recently, they've been redoing them, and I think maybe now they're down to eight. But it was an interesting contrast to me because clearly with what was going on at the time and still to some extent was going on with Uber, those values were not driving the right behaviors. Again, no pun intended. Um, Exactly. (laughs) We're filled with these. I want to stay still thinking about this idea of human and the direction of where you think the world is going. Just by coincidence, a friend of mine on Twitter sent me two articles last week, and they have to do with IBM. Our discussion isn't really about IBM, but as their example of what's going on. So the first article was something that I sort of had a cursory understanding of, but I was impressed to hear that. Thomas Watson, who created IBM, his belief was that people mattered most to the success of his company. So people first. And when the company was established, IBM's top value was respect for the individual. Mm -hmm. And this is astonishing when you think about how organizations operate today, that over its first seven decades, 70 years, no workers were ever laid off. And if the business changed, which of course it did, employees were retrained or they were forced to adapt. So there's some pain associated with this, but the one pain didn't come with it was your job is at risk. And Watson believed that human beings work better when they weren't feeling insecure, this safety issue. Maslow, very essential in, in Maslow's hierarchy. And he believed that employees would make a full commitment to the organization if they felt that the organization was making a full commitment to them. So that was his underlying philosophy in establishing the company. And those values held up for 70 years. But the second article describes an IBM today that routinely lays off workers. And right now they're being sued for allegedly laying off 20,000 employees over the last just three years. And all of these people 40 years or older. So this is like a really stark contrast. And so I guess my big question to you, Erica, is whether you believe that this idea of creating more human workplaces is something that most organizations are really, really truly committed to doing today. And are we moving toward this IBM of yesteryear? Are we returning to what worked in that era or more like the IBM today or something else? What's your thought? So I will preface this by saying, you know, I am not an expert on IBM or, you know, that specific issue that we have in terms of the layoffs going on right now. But what I will say is that companies have to be concerned and committed to thinking about a more human workplace or they won't survive as we move forward. Because we talked about these new generations coming in at such a rapid pace that you won't be able to attract and retain top talent. It's not going to happen. I would also say with the rise of the gig economy, there are just so many more options for all kinds of people to work. The unemployment rate is at the lowest it's been in years and years, that this will be critical to not only surviving in the next 10 years, but truly thriving in being able to attract 
really strong people. What would you say to a cynical leader who said, you know, six years ago, Gallup came out with these dire predictions about what's going to happen to organizations if they don't elevate engagement? The numbers aren't significantly better. Job satisfaction, really not significantly better. And yet companies are making record profits and you are seeing a record number of people quitting jobs. It's still only about 2% of the population that's quitting at any point in time. So they're holding on to most of their people. So what do you say, when's this moment in time going to come where organizations that have failed to really embrace this are going to pay their dear price for it? Well, they may be able to retain most of their employees, but they're not able to retain their best employees. And that's when they start to feel the pain. The minute they start to lose some people that are so critical to their business, a leader wakes up and says, I think we need to do things differently. Or when issues around diversity and inclusion start to pop up, or they get pressed in the media on why aren't you standing up for an issue, you know, whether it's around immigration or, you know, just broader political or societal issues, like business is just changing and people want very different things out of their workplaces. So a CEO today has to think and connect all of those dots. And at the end of the day, they're going to do it the best when how they think about all of those issues are connected in a real way back to their values. Very good. And, you know, you made a really clear point there that deserves a little underscore. And that is that high performing, high talent people tend to be more demanding. So those are the people that are more at risk simply because they're looking around saying, if I'm going to contribute to an organization, I want an organization contributing to me, sort of the Watson theory, right? Well, and that's why chapter nine, take professional development personally. This is not about giving them the off the shelf course and hope that it all goes well. This is about not only identifying who are your key people, but having real conversations about with them about what is important to them? How do they want to grow? What do they want to learn? And not worrying about, are they going to take those skills and use them somewhere else? Because in most cases, if they see that you are investing in them, they will much more likely stay. And even if you get six months or a year, I mean, this is not the Detroit, you know, Ford, General Motors, or even IBMs where people stay in their careers for 20 to 30 years. If you can get some of these top people to give you an extra year, maybe two, you are having huge bottom line implications from that in a positive way. I agree. It's a chicken and egg kind of a scenario where, you know, the reputation of millennials is they don't stay on jobs. So you've got people that are writing the checks for this training and they're saying, why should I make this investment in people if they're not going to stick around, which is a crazy way of thinking about it. But that unfortunately is how we make it. And it's worse if they don't. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just worse if they don't. So, um, you know, that that's the risk that you need to take. But, you know, the data is pretty clear that they want growth and they want something that's not cookie cutter and off the shelf. So, you know, in the book, I, I give an example, you know, it's not a huge company like IBM and we could talk about ways to scale this, but Aria Finger, who's the CEO of DoSomething.org and as a not-for-profit, they don't have deep pockets for ongoing professional development. And I highlighted her in the book because she's a leader that truly takes professional development personally. And she asks all of her employees, what is important to you? What do you want to learn? How do you want to develop? Do you want to be a better public speaker? Do you want to have a byline, have it write an article? Do you want, if you're in sales, are you more interested in marketing? And just by asking and knowing where their people want to go, what they're interested in, she is able to find opportunities and match them to what their employees want to learn. And in many cases, it doesn't cost anything and it makes her employees feel heard, feel valued. And especially for a not-for-profit, her retention rate is through the roof. Well, the cool part of this is the understanding that developing people in aspects that may not affect the work directly is still going to benefit the employee and that will inherently translate somewhere along the line in their work performance. In other words, what we often think is, well, if they're an accountant, we're just going to give them accounting classes. And when you're saying, would you like to write an article or would you like to learn how to give a speech? 
that is sort of outside the box, but understands human nature, which is, this is something that I'm interested in in broadening my career. And if you're willing to do that for me, I'm going to appreciate and reciprocate. A hundred percent. Another really cool example is there are two companies, Betterment and a consulting company called Insignia, Insignium, which is based out in California. They both do something where they'll send out an email asking employees, what are some things that they could offer to teach other employees? And so, again, you don't even have to spend money on bringing in outside people. And this is not instead of more traditional training. It's all additive. So you have all these employees who are able to teach their peers something. And we all know what's the base, what's the best way to learn something. It's actually to teach someone. And it's almost this swapping of skills and all of them get better at public speaking because they're up in front of a group and, you know, it's opt in. Everybody doesn't have to do it. But again, it doesn't cost much. People are developing in so many different ways and they're building relationships with each other and seeing their peers and their colleagues in different ways. And it's fun. People love it. It's fantastic. Great. Okay. So I want to get to the meat of your book and the subtitle of your book is 10 surefire ways to create workplaces that are good for people and great for business. And I wish we could talk about all of them, but I want to explore some of them that I thought were really interesting. And the first one is, has to do with creating clear boundaries for when people are expected to be working. At the very start of the conversation, you sort of implied that a lot of this is technology-driven, responding to technology. And you mentioned firms in your book that now prohibit sending email from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., and they even discourage weekend emailing. And leaders who've done this and established these kinds of guidelines, they think they give people back their peace of mind, which I happen to agree with, and thereby they create greater, your word, sustainability. So why don't more companies do this? What's your thinking on this? Why have we resisted and why is this such an outlier idea? Because the leaders don't want to disconnect themselves. So they don't want their employees disconnecting because it would mean that they don't have anybody to reach out to on a weekend or late at night. We are addicted to the technology. The technology is designed to suck us in. There's this feeling that we always need to be busy. And so this kind of a program, if it does not start at the top, and if the leaders don't model it, it will never happen. I absolutely agree with you in the sense that we think, oh, you know, we're going to lose some productivity here if we let this thing happen. But giving people that time back is, I think, sort of an essential thing here. But one of the questions I had for you was, so it says no emails between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. But what if you're an international company and you've got people working in different companies? Does that just mean that you're off between 10 and 6 a.m., that you're not responding? Well, what they say is that it depends on what you're working on and you need to talk about these issues within your team. So these are general guidelines that reflect their values as a company, that they want to be one of the healthiest companies in the world. And so they tell people, if you're on a team where all, you know, they don't have tons of overseas people, but if you do, you need to have conversations and talk about how does this rule slash protocol slash guideline impact your team. They also tell people that the rule of no email between 10 and 6 is not when you're working on something that's mission critical. This is a consulting firm. You know, this is a high pressure industry. They are, you know, these many of the people there are coming from companies like McKinsey and BCG and Booz Allen. I mean, these are people that have tons of education, people that are used to being in very high pressured environments. And so, you know, they're not saying no one can send an email between 10 and 6. It's about honoring relationships, being thoughtful. And of course, we all know as a project team, and you know, I come from consulting, so I've lived this, you know, many times you need to be working. But the idea is that you really do press pause before you send that email at 9.55. And I love that they call it a Z-bomb. You know, the company that you're referring to is called Vynamic. Mm -hmm. They have Z-mail, Z-Z-Z-mail, as in catch some Zs, with the hope that people can sleep. And so you don't want to be that person that blindly sends an email at 9.55. However, this is a business. You know, they want to keep all of their people employed and be around a year from now. 
So it's about, again, honoring relationships. We need to do right by the clients, right by our employees, and right by ourselves. So let's just be more intentional and more thoughtful. And no hard and fast rules, which is what I was hoping exactly. you'd get to, right? So apply your own knowledge of your company and values, but do it in a way that ultimately gives people a little bit of their lives back. It changes how you think about your relationship with technology. When I email the CEO of that company, Dan Callista, unless it's mission critical, which it's not in terms of my relationship with him, I'm going to send him an email during regular hours. Well, we forget. When I was growing up, I grew up in Long Island and my dad worked in New York City. And, you know, he'd stay late to finish his work. But when he got home, there was anything that he had in his briefcase. That That's all that could occupy him. And so we have to realize that people did have much more of their lives, not just on the evenings and mornings. You know, you weren't on your iPhone going into work and coming home to work. And you certainly weren't doing that on weekends. And so we've sort of filled up people's lives in a way that I think deserves some decompression. And that's what I liked about this chapter in your book. You mentioned a Glassdoor survey that shows that the average American worker has only taken half the amount of vacation to which they're entitled over the last 12 months. So people get four weeks, they take two weeks. Why aren't people taking this? Number one, many new companies have unlimited vacation. And I think at first, everybody thought that was such a great thing for their business, for their teams. The reality, it's had the adverse effect. There are no rules of the road. There are no boundaries. There are no guidelines. So the first point I'll make on this is that the companies that have adopted unlimited vacation are finding, for the most part, that people are taking less vacation. And sort of that little known fact, you know, the reason why companies are doing it is that they get a tax write-off. And if somebody quits and has a, a bunch of vacation that they've accrued but haven't used, they don't have to pay people for those days. So while it looks like it's a very human benefit, it actually benefits the companies more. So that's one reason companies aren't taking, people aren't taking vacation. The second reason, back to the leaders, they're not modeling it. You know, they have to walk the walk. And if they're not taking vacation, nobody else will. The third reason why people are not taking vacation is that goes back to this idea about technology and when to send emails is that the reality is they feel like, what's the point? I take a vacation and it's really like a staycation, even if or a relocation that they're going somewhere and then their families expect that they're actually going to be connecting with them and swimming in the pool with the kids if they have kids. But the reality is they've just taken their office and moved it with them to the Bahamas. So what's the point? Because their family's mad at them. Their email is piling up and they just give up. Well, this is a very good story you've just told here. I mean, is that fair to people? Is that human? No, it's not human which goes back to this idea of creating guidelines and rules of the road. So what companies are starting to think about as they've seen this data, and this is also a U.S. thing. When you look at other countries, they think we're crazy. You know, people in other countries do take vacation. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we know, all of Europe shuts down for August. So we are clearly not even close to that. But now there's a couple of things that are bringing this to a head. We can go back to the millennials. You know, they really do want to take vacation. They want to work hard, but they're not willing to do it 24-7, 365 days a year. So that's a positive that they're saying, you know what? I do want to take some time for myself to explore, and I do want to be able to unplug. That is a first piece. So they don't want to have that unwanted turnover. And they're seeing real stress in the workplace, real health issues real stress. And so from a bottom line perspective, you know, and there's a whole chapter on this in the book too, be well, you know, the more that stress goes up, the more sick days and, you know, the more issues associated with stress is also not good for your bottom line. So companies are saying, what can we do? So some of the strategies that they've started to look at, you know, one of my favorite examples is from Google, where I spoke with a manager and he said that he came into work one day and he had an email waiting from the human resources department, which said, hey, John, we just want you to know that we noticed that you have X amount of days in unused vacation. We think you need to take some time off. 
you know, why don't you take a look at what you've been doing and let us know when you can take some time off. You know, I don't know exactly how it was worded, but it was something like that, giving him a little nudge and saying, we've noticed that you might need some time off, really trying to get ahead of things. And then he said that after that, he will get another email from them approximately every 10 days until his vacation balance goes down. And I said, so what do you do? He said, I actually took some time off. Might be a day here and day there. I might not be taking a full week off, but I noted it and said, you know what? I I do love my job and things have gotten really busy. And I actually noticed that I could use some time off. And then you realize that when you do take the time off and come back, how much more refreshed, focused, and productive you are. Well, obviously, that aligns to Google's values by having that automated. So it's not put on the backs of individual managers. So if you work for me, the pressure would be on for me to say, hey, Erica, you haven't taken your vacation. Instead, they've institutionalized it, and that aligns to the values. So when people get an email like that, they're like, the company is telling me they got to go take vacation. I can't take it any more seriously than that. So I think that's really wonderful. I want to go back to something you said, though, which is that some people aren't taking vacations because all they're doing is moving their office to the Bahamas. So from a humanity standpoint, from a renewal standpoint, from a diminished stress standpoint, all the points you've been making, shouldn't we be telling people to take vacation and literally take vacation instead of taking your laptop with you and sitting on conference calls and doing emails for half of it while your family's sitting at the pool? Yes, 100%. But if the leaders don't do it, and if they don't say to do it, no one will do it. So not only is it up to you know, starting at the top to make sure that the senior people are doing it, they need to celebrate it, share stories about it. So one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is from CEO Barry Rafferty, who's the CEO of Ketchum PR. And the day that she became CEO, that it was announced to the world, happened to coincide with a long planned vacation on safari in Africa, where she was not going to be reachable. And when she found out that she had been offered the job, you know, she got promoted from within and saw when she was going to take the reins, she just couldn't believe that it coincided with this vacation. She has three kids in college. It's hard to find time when all three kids could be with them. She decided to turn it in to a really positive way to share a message and a value and one of her own personal sayings, which was, don't leave a vacation day on the table. And that was always a personal mantra of hers. So as a leader, she did an interview and you know it's on their blog. She wrote this email to the whole company that celebrated the fact that, you know, the timing may not have been perfect, but I don't believe in leaving vacation days on the table and neither should you. That's leadership and that's your point. It really does come down to what people see us do versus what we say. And it sounds like a platitude, but it's absolutely true. I remember I traveled a lot in one of my last positions. And when I was in the office, I tended to overwork. And so a woman that worked for me was there. And I began to get really comfortable with the idea that she was there until it dawned on me that she's working the same hours that I was because I wasn't really giving her permission to leave. Mm -hmm. And it needed to be that direct. I actually had to go back and apologize to her when I realized what had happened. So you make that point in the book, which I think is, we forget the example that we're setting that people are watching every second. Mm -hmm. I also love one of my other favorite anecdotes is from the CEO of PepsiCo, who runs the Australia and New Zealand region. And he has a mantra called leaving loudly. And I also, I love the fact that it is a man because, you know, many times, you know, women, you know, people think of women and they they have to leave and pick up their kids, not all the time, but, you know, in in many cases, you know, there are stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So we have to be realistic. But I love that, that this CEO will say on the top of his lungs, in the office, I, you know, I'm not going to scream on your podcast, but, you know, I'm leaving. It's four o'clock. I'm going to my son's baseball game. You know, have a great day. And to your point of giving permission, you know, he's leaving and he's not sneaking out the door. He is leaving loudly. Love it. 
One of the other chapters that I really liked and I think will help a lot of people has to do with meetings. And you make this point that people like meetings because they give us an opportunity to connect. That's about the heart. We like to be connected with people. We like to see people, talk to people, be around people. And that's actually a very healthy thing for our well-being. But, you know, and I see this on Twitter all the time, people saying how, you know, (laughs) I mean, really just kidding, but how they want to like shoot themselves when they're in too many meetings and meetings that go too long and don't have a focus. And so tell us about some of the best practices that you discovered in terms of running meetings that people get what they need out of them, but no more, no less. Even when you think of meetings, we need to honor relationships. I mean, it all comes back to that element. I break it down into three things. And if you can focus on these three things, you will have much more effective, efficient, and connected meetings. Because as you know, to your point, I mean, people like meetings, we are human beings, we are wired to connect. So the first is purpose. What is the purpose of this meeting? There are so many meetings that just continue to happen because of inertia. Well, we've always had that meeting. Well, what is its purpose? We don't have a purpose. Let's cancel the meeting. And you know, Dave Gilbo is one of the co-founders of Borby Parker. At the end of every week, sits with his assistant and does a post-mortem on his meetings. How did this one go? Was that one relevant? Were the right people there? And really analyzes the meetings so that going forward, he can have ones that make sense for what's going on in the business. So the first one is purpose. The second one is presence. And as we've been talking about on this podcast, we know that physical presence and psychological or emotional presence are two very different things. And we've all been in those meetings where we're sitting around the table and someone says, hey, Erica, you know, what'd you think about that? And I say, wait, what? And you know, I was texting under the table. So not only is that bad for, you know, relationships, somebody might be presenting something and they're really not happy with the fact that I was doing something else. It also impacts productivity because I have to say, wait, what? And then they have to explain the thing for a second time. So bringing your groups together and having a real conversation about being present and what that means and what the expectations are is very, very important. And this isn't in the book, but I did speak with one company that when you're going online to book a meeting in one of their meeting rooms, you can actually check off whether it is a meeting, a laptop's up or a laptop's down meeting. You know, why not set the expectations before people walk in the door, which, which is a great use of technology. I love that example. And the last part comes down to protocols, because as I said, when we started left to our own devices, we're not connecting. We can't help ourselves. So we need to make very clear rules of the road. And one of my all-time favorite examples was with Todd Yellen, who is the Senior Vice President of Product Strategy at Netflix. And Todd happens to be obsessed with meetings. And so when he has his product strategy meeting, the first thing he does, or first thing he did when he started it, when he got there, was to democratize the process around that meeting. Anybody could come. You didn't have to be invited. Literally, anyone in the company can come as long as you follow these protocols. So number one, no calling in. You have to be in San Francisco to come to that meeting. And as a global company, that may not seem fair, but there are other ways to have a voice and add your ideas and input into that meeting. And so he will have Google Docs set up where you can go in and give your opinions and figure out ways to add value But his feeling is to really get to substantive issues, we need to be face-to-face. So once you're face-to-face, of course, for Todd, you can't have your phone anywhere in sight. So no texting under the table, no wait what. And then he makes sure that people do all the pre-reading. So uh, an agenda goes out. You know, he doesn't expect you to be catching up on what you're supposed to be talking about in that, you know, when when you go to a meeting and the first 15 minutes is sort of fluff where everybody's coming up to speed, which if you add that 10 minutes times eight meetings a day, you are wasting a lot of time. In Todd's meetings, there is no fluff. And one of my favorite parts, which seems so logical, but I rarely hear it, is that we've all been in meetings where our part is done and all we want to do is get up 
but we feel guilty that we're going to offend someone if we get up in their meeting. And we know that the reality, it's actually the opposite. That if you stay in a meeting and you're multitasking, that's going to hurt that relationship more. So he makes these rules of the road very, very clear. And he says to people, here's the agenda. Every 30 minutes, we're going to take a break. And please, I beg you, if this next part doesn't affect you or if you don't need to weigh in on it, please leave. You know, we don't want you to waste your time and it's not good for you and it's not good for the company. So he's just such a great example of somebody who thinks so thoughtfully about how to be the most productive and also to have people truly connect on very substantive issues. And then you might be thinking, well, how do the people in the meeting like these meetings? And I thought that, and I asked him if I could speak to some of the people that come to his meetings, which I did, and they love it. They almost feel like they're given this freedom to actually think more deeply, and they're being given permission not to multitask, which in this day and age, I truly think is a gift. Well, just to punctuate this, the idea of getting an agenda out in advance and saying, we're going to spend this much amount of time on this topic and this topic and this topic, then people can say, well, when that minute hits and we finish that discussion, I know that I can schedule myself for something else, right? I generally know that within the first 15 minutes, we're going to get to this topic and then I can go. So it gives people more freedom. But I love those ideas. So I'm really glad we had time for them. And I want to transition us, Erica. You're a New Yorker, and I know you love fast action. So this next part of the podcast is built for you. We call this our heartbeat round because what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions and have you answer each of them in a heartbeat. And all of these questions just give us an additional insight into who you are as a person and what drives your thinking, your philosophy. And our audience happens to love this. So please give me the answer that instinctively comes to you. Are you ready? I am ready. The human quality you most admire. Being a great listener. The human quality you least admire. Being a terrible listener. <laughs> One book that has had a profound impact on your life. Oh, I just read a book very recently that I loved. Actually, you should get her, the author, on your show. You would also love her. She wrote a book called The Art of Gathering, and her name is Priya Parker. You know, I'm a huge connector and I love to have social gatherings, work gatherings, and it, it's taking the thought that goes behind those gatherings to yet another level. So I read it and I was so inspired. Fantastic. Meditation practice, yes or no? Oh, can't believe you're asking me that. No, I try and I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> no judgments here. <laughs> Just wondering. Jets or Giants, Mets or Yankees? Giants, Yankees. One lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life? When you think about this idea of honoring relationships, it also includes honoring that relationship with yourself. And I think it's becoming more of an issue now. I just turned 50 and I've now heard from other friends that have turned 50 that when you turn 50, you care less about what everybody else thinks and finally start focusing on yourself. But I wish I didn't have to wait till 50 to figure that out. You're here. World leader of any era that you most admire. Well, I'm in the business mode right now with my book coming out tomorrow. And a leader that I've recently learned a lot about as part of my research is Satya Nadella at Microsoft. And he talks about Western business practices and Eastern business practices. And what I love about him is an article that talked about how he sees this idea of being human as truly a state of being. And that really struck me. Your best synonym for the word heart. Love. The newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. Are you preface this by I'm a New Yorker? So mm -hmm. I do a combination. You don't want to admit to the Post, do you? I love the Post. The New York Post and then the Journal, Wall Street Journal. You know, being in business school, I got in the habit of reading that every day, but I have to complement it with the New York Post. I just love it. But I thought you were going to say New York Times, but you, you're a Post reader. I have the New York Times too, but the New York Post, like most people won't admit that. I will admit I love the New York Post. Thank you. That's really where I was going at it. <laughs> Being a New Yorker, former New Yorker, I get that. So that's uh, your guilty pleasure. It is my guilty pleasure and I have no shame. I love it. Favorite movie of all time? Sleepless in Seattle. Skill improvement you're working on right now? I would say unitasking. 
because I, for years, would pride myself on my ability to keep a hundred balls in the air. Like people would compliment me on that all the time. Yet with all the research that I've been doing, I know that multitasking doesn't really work. But even though I'm pretty good at it, I do know that it is better on so many levels to focus on one thing at a time. But it's not easy for me. Relationships matter. One piece of wisdom you've taught all three of your children. Relationships matter. Thank you, Erica. That was very fun, actually. And as we wind things down, I wonder if there's any insight in your book or just from your own direct experience that we didn't get to talk about that you want to make sure gets shared. So any final advice on how to most successfully create a human workplace? My final advice is it's not rocket science, but that doesn't make it easy. It takes intention. It doesn't have to cost anything. And to focus on saying thank you and bringing the idea of gratitude into the workplace. Because that, at the end of the day, is a big part of what makes it human. Well, with that, let me say thank you. I appreciate your coming on. I'm very excited for you with your book coming out tomorrow and that you made time to join us on the podcast. is just really wonderful. And so on behalf of everyone listening in, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and I wish you the greatest success with the book. Well, thank you. I loved it. And your questions were great and thoughtful and really brought so many aspects of this book to light. So thank you. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Give my regards to Broadway. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye-bye. As we close, I'd like to thank you once again for listening in and to make the request that you introduce us to your friends and colleagues who might also benefit from the insight shared by our state-of-the-art leadership guests. It's through word of mouth that we've grown so far, and we are extremely grateful to you for that support. I also encourage you to reach out to me personally if you're interested in providing feedback on what you like and what we might improve. And if you have guests you'd like to recommend, we welcome those names too. You can find me on Twitter where my handle is at Mark C. Crowley. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, Mark C. Crowley again, or email me at mark at markccrowley.com. Honestly, I would love to hear from you. And I, of course, want to thank my Seattle-based team, producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz and webmaster, Randy Yant. And I leave you with my constant reminder that when you leave from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. <laughs>